All right, good morning, everybody. Hey, if someone could grab the, the, the doors for me, that would be most excellent. Uh, it's after 10 o'clock, so we need, to, we need to get moving. Great to see you all. Um, hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. I can't believe we're already, we're already Thanksgiving time. Pretty crazy. Um, if you haven't been here recently, this is, we're calling it Trusting God When It Hurts. This is session 10. Um, if, if you haven't been here, hopefully you can pick it up and it's, it'll be helpful uh, in any case. I'm, uh, I'm using a book called um, Why Does It Have to Hurt by a guy named Dan McCartney to, to help us organize and, um, and glean some of his insight uh, for this class. Um, here's kind of where we're at. We said that although we don't, we don't know the specific reasons for suffering, oftentimes that's the case. We don't know the specific reasons why we're suffering. Um, often we don't. The New Testament, however, does give us general, uh, general reasons why Christians suffer. And so far we've looked at three of those reasons, three of the four. First, we said that we suffer because Jesus suffered, right? And we're so closely identified with Jesus that our life takes on the shape of Jesus's life. Like Bill said, if you were in the, if you were in the sermon, he talked about how when we trust Jesus Christ, we're united to him. It's kind of like Velcro. Sorry to ruin it for you if you if you're going to go to the sermon, but that, that he talked about how we're united to him. And so the, the shape of his life was suffering first, then glory, you know, the cross before the crown. And so we suffer um, because Jesus suffered and we identify with him in that. So that's one reason why Christians suffer. A second reason we suffer is as a testimony. So as we are trusting Christ and as we, uh, as we cling to God in hope, right, during our suffering, that's a testimony that, that demonstrates to others who are watching us suffer that we believe what we believe, that Jesus Christ is real. Um, and it's also a testimony to ourselves. Wow. I mean, this is hard. This is really hard what I'm experiencing, and yet I am trusting in Jesus. So, so the second reason is that we suffer as testimony. The third reason that we suffer, the, the New Testament tells us, is as training in righteousness. We looked at that last week, training in righteousness, okay? Um, God disciplines those he loves, the Bible says, and so God uses suffering in our lives to grow us in holiness to grow us more and more like Jesus. Today, we'll get to the fourth reason why Christians suffer. And uh, as we look to do that, let me, let me pray for our time together. Our Father and our God, we, we come to you this morning. And Lord, we, we want to encounter you. We want to experience you. We want to experience your love. We, we confess that we know a lot about you. Um, but we want to know you, and, and we want to know you in our suffering. You talk about the knowing Jesus in the fellowship of his sufferings, Lord. So as we, as we talk about suffering, I pray that you would draw us near to you. And for those who are experiencing significant suffering, Father, we pray that you would come and comfort them even in our midst, even in our Sunday school today. And we pray our time and worship they would encounter your, your tender care and your comforting presence. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So why Christians suffer? Let me, let me get, begin our session this morning with a question. Here's the question. Have you ever met someone who has suffered a great deal and yet is full of joy? Have you ever met someone who's suffered significantly and yet um, still been full of joy? Or have you heard of anybody? 
Yes, Kathy. Yeah. 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 Um, every time she comes in, just, I see her, she's just full of joy. And she says that when her husband passed away, that his face lit up right before he went home to heaven. I mean, there's so much crazy Wow. And he came to the your daughter and everything, trying to understand the why they were just Yeah. Wow. Wow. And, and thank you for sharing that. And some of you may not have heard that. The, the question was, the question is, have you ever met someone who has suffered a great deal and yet is full of joy? And Kathy shared a, a, a personal acquaintance where there was great suffering and yet there was, there was joy in the midst of that. And, and really the follow-up question is, um, how would you explain, Kathy, their ability to suffer and yet in the midst of that have joy. You know, I think the two of them had such a love for Christ and such a belief that even when their daughter passed away, they knew they wouldn't see their daughter again, as hard as that was. Yeah. And they just trusted that um, the same couple that after they retired started living south every year, and then one year they came back and said in Sunday school, you know, we've been praying and we thought we were going to retire and just go have fun all winter long. Yeah. And we Wow. Yeah. Wow. Right. So their their ability to both suffer and yet be full of joy, the 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 explanation is their trust in Christ, their 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 belief, their conviction that death is not the end, um, that they would see Christ in one another again. And um, that exuded into their day-to-day life as well. They, they, they chose, they, they could have chosen a different lifestyle and it, they, they decided to pour their heart and life into the, the local church. Yeah, that's great. Any other examples, Willie? I shared with you all, I knew a man who was a, <clears throat> a farmer all his life in South Dakota. He raised on a farm, he lived in a farm, and, and after he was, I don't know how old, 60 or more, he, he got Lou Gehrig's disease. Mm-hmm. And he had to sell the farm, move into a town, and just sit in a chair, basically. And I went to see him, came through the door, and he said, isn't God good? Wow. And that was a result of his knowing the Lord for all those years, as a young man and then as a farmer. Uh, he knew the goodness of God. Yeah. He still rejoice. Wow. Wow. That That's a... And... and and yeah, you, you gave the reason why. Like he, he knew he knew the Lord and had hope in uh, in Christ. That's amazing. I don't know a ton about Lou Gehrig's disease, but it's a pretty awful. I would I would imagine that was a pretty awful experience. Yeah, you know. There was a couple. Um, Penny and I knew that we had gone to church years ago, and after their children were um, born, and they had like six children. His wife came down with a disease that disabled her to the point where he would have to bathe her and do her hair and makeup. And they had a lift on the side of their car when they were older, in their 70s. And uh, he would just care for her. Even while he was working, he would take an hour and a half for lunch, come home, tend to her needs, feed her. And they were always so joyful. Mm. And I have never seen anyone's Bible so worn as his on the edges. The paper was worn down. They had a joy that could only come through the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Both of them. Yeah. Those are great examples. I'm, I'm sure we could give more. But these questions lead us to the fourth reason why Christians suffer. And the reason is this. The fourth reason why Christians suffer according to God's word is to get us ready for glory. Getting ready for glory. And I want to explore that 
really in three kind of movements this morning. The first movement in your outline, if you're taking notes at home, there are, there are some note sheets here. But the first aspect of getting ready for glory is purification. We're going to talk about purification. And I want, uh, I want you to see this from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Let me, let me go ahead and read that, um, read that text. 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice in verses three through five, Peter gives praise to God and Father because he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here's my question based on the text, what is the living hope? What is this living hope that Peter's referring to? Yeah. Yeah, he's pointing to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, right? Kept for you in heaven. The living hope is an inheritance kept in heaven for you that will be revealed. It's the future hope of being face-to-face with the triune God. That's what, that's what Peter's getting at in verses 3 through 5. It's imperishable. This inheritance that's coming is imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. And, that, and, and then in verse 6, Peter says, in this you rejoice. He's referring back to that inheritance. In this, you rejoice. It's that future hope that we rejoice in that will be revealed. And then Peter continues, and he says, in this you rejoice, the inheritance that's coming, that's going to be revealed at the last time, in that you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So while there's joy and future hope, there may also be various trials that we encounter and we experience. The word for trials there can be translated, also translated, tests. Trials or tests. We're talking here, the tests or trials are hard things that occur. Suffering of various kinds. And really the the word is generic. It doesn't specify the particular type of suffering, of hardship. It's varied. All kinds of different suffering and hardship. Things that in themselves are worthy of a response of grief or sorrow. Okay? So the point is that somehow there can be sorrow and joy together in the Christian life. I mean, how does Peter assume there's joy and sorrow mingled together in the Christian life? How does, he, how does that work according to our text here in Peter? Yeah. Well, we always see that joy as being up 
Around yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, I don't think that's the kind of joy he's talking about. He's talking about the joy of knowing that we're going to have eternal life with Christ and everything is going to be healed and new bodies. Yep. And so, yeah, we will suffer here, but he's told us we're going to suffer and not to be surprised and to just think of the joy of being happy. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, very good. Yeah, so joy, we tend to think of that as, you know, the same as happiness you know, lightness. And it's, it is something deeper than that. It could include that. But yeah, there's this joy. There's this conviction that there is an inheritance coming. And yet in the midst of that, we experience sorrows. And so, so Peter tells us that, that there's joy and sorrow mixed together often in the Christian life. Um, it's not happy, happy, clappy, you know, put on your plastic smile on Sunday morning, right? There are real sorrows that we experience because of real trials. Um, so that's one thing we want to say. Yeah, Willie. We, we want to keep remembering, although we've maybe spoken about it before, hope does not mean I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow when I'm going fishing. Very good. This is a sure hope. When, when we hope in God, it's, it's a given. Yeah. He will do this. Yeah. So we don't have to worry that's not going to happen. Yeah, that's really good. So, so when we talk about you know, faith, hope, and love, those three, oftentimes our, our culture, we tend to think of hope as, yeah, I hope it's going to be sunny tomorrow. But that, that's not how the Bible uses that word, as Willie has pointed out. It's, it's a conviction. It's a standing on God's word and, and embracing and trusting in his promises. Now, that's not always easy for us to do. Let's just be honest, right? Um, but God is working that, that conviction, that hope in us. And actually, he's using suffering to do that. And we're going to kind of see how that works. So, so we, he said that there's this rejoicing and yet it may be necessary to be grieved by various trials. And then notice the purpose of those various trials in verse seven. See the words, so that, that a bell should go off there, right? That's a purpose statement. Okay? So in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the purpose is that these trials or tests reveal the genuineness of our faith. And genuine faith is an incredibly precious thing because when Jesus returns, God is going to commend that faith, that, that hope, that trust in him. And this is incredible God is going to praise us and give us glory and honor. Like, think of, he's going to give you praise and glory and honor as you've endured various trials. We're going to unpack that a little bit. You probably have questions. I might have answers. Um, but let's look at this in more detail. So Peter says that purification gets us ready for glory. That's really what I want you to see here. And we're going to make three applications. Purification is getting us ready for glory, this process of purification. So few applications, three applications. The first application is this. Peter does not say that we should rejoice at suffering. That's not what he's saying. He doesn't say that we should be masochists and rejoice 
at or in suffering in and of itself. We are to rejoice in the future hope even while we may be somewhat sorrowful because of various trials. Now, James says something similar. Remember James chapter one, count it all joy when you experience various trials, right? But then he goes on to say what the purpose of the trials are. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various, when you meet trials of various kinds. And then it's followed by, for you know, hear the purpose there? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So what James is saying is something similar. He's not saying that the suffering itself is something we should rejoice in. He's saying it's what God is doing in the midst of that suffering. So we're not masochists. We're acknowledging that suffering is real. Suffering hurts. God is not saying don't pretend it doesn't hurt. But he is saying, I'm doing something in the midst of that. Does that make sense? So we're not called to wear masks of shiny, happy people in the midst of suffering. In fact, you read the Psalms. Look at Jesus' life. It's appropriate to grieve and lament. Look at the life of Job. We've talked about him as well. Um, and so Peter is saying the same thing. We're to rejoice in our future hope. And, and we can rejoice in the midst of suffering now because we can look forward to what this suffering is doing in our lives and he's using it for a good purpose. Second, so the first thing is, Peter is not saying that we should rejoice at suffering, but what God is, the good purpose he has in our suffering. Second, Peter identifies God's good purpose for those trials, and he identifies those as the testing, the tested genuineness of your faith. So that's the second, that's the second application. Peter identifies God's good purpose for those trials as the tested genuineness of, of your faith and my faith. God uses our suffering as something like a trial by fire to purify our faith. Peter uses the illustration of how gold is refined by fire. Is anybody familiar with the refining process? Some of you may be. Um, I, I had to look this up. Honestly, I wanted to know a little bit. And um, here's a few things that I learned about the refining process of gold. It usually involves some raw material, maybe rock that has some, some gold in it. It could involve other impure forms of gold as well. But that raw material um, is heated up to a temperature of 1,948 degrees Fahrenheit. That's pretty hot. 1,948 degrees Fahrenheit. That's gold's melting point. And that's pretty warm. And as those metals heat up, chemicals are added to the process that allows the gold to separate from the other metals, right? And then those, those lesser metals, those lesser valuable metals are, are eliminated, separated from the pure gold. So the dross is scraped off the top. Right. The dross is scraped off the top. And, and, and Peter is pointing to this process in our lives. The various trials, there's heat involved. We can, we can think of suffering as heat in our lives. And God is using the heat in our lives to test the genuineness of our faith to purify it, if you will. Um, just like with gold, the refining process is meant to re remove the various impurities. So Peter said God is using suffering like that in our lives to purify our faith. Um, and through the heat 
and the pressure of suffering, the Holy Spirit purges our old sinful nature. You know, the selfish me that wants to be the center of the universe. God is, through the Spirit and through the circumstances, He is progressively burning off the selfish me through the heat of suffering. And what that does is more and more I then manifest the life of Jesus Christ. Pastor Bill talked about how Jesus went down, down. Some of you haven't heard that yet, but Philippians 2, how he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, how he laid aside certain rights and privileges, how he obeyed, how he obeyed even to the point of death on a cross. And that's, that's what suffering is doing for us. It is purifying our faith. Okay, so those are two, um, two aspects. And here we read in 2 Corinthians 4, 11, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. That, that death on a daily moment-by-moment moment process can be little, uh, little aspects of suffering, dying to ourselves, considering others more important, whatever kind of little suffering can happen moment by moment, we're always being given over to that so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. God is using this constantly in our lives to purge us. A familiar hymn captures this sentiment, uh, how firm a foundation has a stanza that reads, when through fiery trials your pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be your supply. The flame shall not hurt you, I only design your dross to consume and your gold to refine. So two applications of 1 Peter one, uh, 3 through 7 we've made so far is that Peter's not telling us to rejoice at suffering but rather because God is using suffering for a good purpose in our lives. And the good purpose of our suffering is the tested genuineness of our faith. And at that point, we could raise a question. But what if we fail? What if we fail to respond to suffering by cursing God and withdrawing from him? What if we fail to respond well to the suffering we're experiencing? Maybe it's as bad as us cursing God and withdrawing from him. What if our faith is revealed to be weak? Then what happens? It's kind of a rhetorical question because I'm going to tell you the answer, right? Yeah? Well, if it pricks our conscience that we've done that, then I think we can be assured that we are saved and that we need to humble ourselves and cry out to God for forgiveness and mercy. Yeah. Yeah, good, Neil. Yeah, I, I, that, that's the answer. So if, if we fail to respond well, when our faith is revealed to be weak, which I don't think I'm alone, it often is, the fact that like Neil said, the conviction of the Spirit that we're responding that way should, should encourage us to turn afresh to our compassionate God. And, and we can be grateful in a way because it reminds us that it's not about our strength. Our stre it's not about our strength of faith. It's about God's grace and the strength of his mercy in our lives. So even when we respond poorly to that testing or that trial, we can turn to God afresh. We are weak. He is strong. Our failure can be used to glorify God afresh by turning to him and receiving fresh forgiveness and fresh mercy. Remember who's writing this letter. It's Peter. Remember Peter? Lord, I'll never deny you. Right? If everybody else does, I won't. 
Peter is the one who tells us that our tested faith um, is precious. That's the Peter who was a failure. And when the fires of testing burned hottest in Peter's life, Peter cursed God and withdrew. He withdrew from his friend and his Lord, but Peter found fresh forgiveness, which resulted in fresh transformation. So even when our faith, our tested faith, fails, it can be an opportunity for us to turn freshly to our gracious and good God. Okay? So in 1 Peter, we've discussed two applications so far. We don't rejoice in suffering itself, but in God's good purposes for suffering. And the good purpose of our suffering is the tested genuineness of our faith. And the third application we find in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 7, um, is purification, getting ready for glory. And let's look at this passage again. Purification, per se, in this passage. Let me read the passage. Let me actually read verses 6 through 7. Um, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter says that his readers may have to experience grief in various trials so that the tested genuineness of their faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I I said this earlier, it's not definitive, but it's highly, highly likely, I think, that Peter is referring to the praise which God gives to his people since in this context, Peter is referring, he's referring them to rejoice in the inheritance that is theirs, that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. What's more, when Peter says that the genuineness of faith is precious, you know, we could ask, precious in whose sight, right? It says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious, precious in whose sight? I mean, if you think about that, it's not precious in the culture at large. What is our culture value? What's precious in the sight of our culture? Like athletic ability, you know, capability, intelligence, physical beauty, intellectual and artistic abilities. I mentioned athletic prowess, wealth, power, strength, and confidence. That's what's precious in our culture's sight, not faith, genuine faith in the Lord. And even in our Christian community, we often, what's precious are outward gifts and capabilities. You know, talents, genuine faith often goes unnoticed. And so when Peter says that the genuineness of faith is precious, he probably means that it's precious in the sight of God. And so what Peter seems to be saying here is that this purification is getting us ready for glory, this tested genuineness of our faith when we, at the day of judgment, at the day of the revelation of Jesus Christ, God himself is going to give us praise and honor and glory. That's an astounding thing. So genuine faith often receives no reward in the present age, but God notices how we walk through various trials and testing and how that, how that purifies us. And on the final day of judgment, that genuine faith, even if it's small like a mustard seed, right? 
that genuine faith will receive praise, glory, and honor. Your faith is not in vain. That's what that means. So, why do Christians suffer? One answer is, God is getting us ready for glory. He's purifying our faith and getting us ready for glory. Wayne Grudem says it this way, God's purposes in present grief may not be fully known in a week, in a year, or even in this lifetime. Indeed, some of God's purposes will not even be known when believers die and go to be with the Lord. Some will only be discovered at the day of final judgment when the Lord reveals the secrets of all hearts and commends with special honor those who trusted him in hardship, even though they could not see the reason for it. They trusted him simply because he was their God and they knew him to be worthy of trust. There's the Football Hall of Fame. There's the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, right? But God will recognize those in the Faith Hall of Fame, those who trusted him in hardship, even though they couldn't see the reason for it. So again, according to 1 Peter 1, 3 through 7, Christians suffer for the purpose of getting ready for glory. Purification gets us ready for glory. A related way we get ready for glory is by weaning from the world. Weaning from the world. And these, next, these last two points will be fairly quick. Weaning from the world. So here's a question. I'll bring this up. In Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, God says that he saw the suffering of his people and then came down to deliver them, right? No sleight of hand. I'm not tricking you. That's a well-known Bible story. He saw the suffering of his people in Egypt and he came down to deliver them. But here's the question. Why did he allow the suffering to happen in the first place? Couldn't he have just prevented the suffering of his people in Egypt? Why did he allow it to happen in the first place? Yes, Rob. Okay, I like that. You're kind of tracking on the, on the line to test their faith. Yeah, okay, yes, yes. To get them to cry out to God to turn back to him? To get them to cry out to God to turn back to him, yes. I, I think both of those are true. Here's how Dan McCartney answers that question. And I think, it's, I think it's borne out in this text here. I know they're suffering, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good land. Dan McCartney answers it this way. If he had done so, if he had prevented the suffering, would the Israelites have ever desired to leave Egypt? It was hard enough to get them to leave even when they were suffering. Likewise, it's hard enough to leave aside the treasures of this evil world, even though we suffer in it. How much harder is it for us to desire the new heavens and new earth when our lives are comfortable? I mean, I don't know if that's the final answer, but I think that's a pretty interesting insight. Yes, There's a Suzanne. There's repetition throughout the entire Bible of how we get complacent and we think that we're okay, we can do it without God, and then he causes something like this to happen, and then we realize how inadequate we are and repent, and that's a cyclic thing. We never seem to get it. Yes, yes, yes. I love that insight. So... Yeah, I mean, I think, I think of Deuteronomy. What chapter is it? Is it 8 or 10? You know, where it says, okay, God says to the Israelites, okay, I'm going to place you in this good land, houses you didn't build, you know, crops you didn't plant. It's going to be great. But he warns them. He says, you know, you're going to be comfortable. It's going to be good. And you're going to be tempted to forget me. And I think you're talking about that dynamic that we all go through that. And that's the life of repentance and faith over and over and over again. And the point is, why do Christians suffer? To get us ready for glory. And, and, 
And, and one aspect of that is weaning us from the world. Weaning us from the world. Hebrews 11, uh, 13 through 16 reads this way. Speaking of those saints who died, that's on chapter 11 in, in Hebrews, the, the hall of faith. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. As we experience suffering in this world, various trials, we're reminded that we're strangers and exiles in this fallen world. Suffering reminds us that this world is not our home. Man, I don't know about you, but I forget that all the time. At best, the city of man only provides fleeting pleasures. Only the city of God provides pleasures forevermore. My friend Stephen Curtis Chapman, some of you may know him, says it like this in a song called Not Home Yet. He says, to all the travelers, pilgrims longing for a home, from one who walks with you on this journey called life's road, it is a long and winding road. From one who's seen the view and dreamt of staying on the mountains high, and one who's cried like you, wanting so much to, lay to, to just lay down and die, I offer this. We must remember this. We are not home yet. We are not home yet. So keep on looking ahead. Let your heart not forget. We are not home yet. And as Suzanne said, I mean, I forget that all the time. The city of man is not our home. Yes, Willie. The old song that some of us older ones used to sing, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. Yes. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. Yes. Yeah, and it is so easy to forget that we are not home yet. Yeah. Finally, God uses suffering to get us ready for glory by preparing us for glory. God gets us ready for glory by preparing us for glory. And we see this in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 through 18. Many of you know this, this text. I love this text. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. I can attest to that. It's wasting away. Take a good look. You should have seen it 30 years ago. It was really something. Um, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Our suffering now is momentary in the sense that it lasts a moment compared to eternity. Our suffering now is light in the sense that it's compared with the weight of glory that is to come. Again, Paul's not minimizing the experience of suffering in this life, but he's saying, look, compared to what's coming, 80 years, maybe, and eternity. There's no comparison. Even though the benefit of to come is not yet seen, we're able to consider the present in light of what's to come. And Paul is basically saying we're, we're, we're of that mindset that we're not just thinking of the here and now, but we're thinking of what is to come. In fact, we do that every day in daily life. How many of you have had a colonoscopy? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to hear that. If you haven't yet, 
just wait. But I mean, we do this in everyday life. We, we don't just think of the moment or the here and now, we think about the future. So like with the colonoscopy, the worst part, if you've experienced it, is having to drink the poop juice, right? It's awful. But I'm willing to do that because I know that the benefit of a colonoscopy, right? Yeah, outweighs what's happening now. So... Yeah, well, it came to mind. It came to mind. I mean, so, so that was the light and momentary affliction of drinking the poop juice compared to getting it up. Making sure there's not a greater problem with, with my colon. Um, yeah, I mean, we do that in other ways, like... We're willing to do the gym. We're willing to go and work out and experience the pain of working out now for a future, you know, to be healthier. So that happens all the time in daily life. And Paul's just basically applying that to the truths, to God's truths. There's momentary and light affliction now, but what is coming is something much greater. And... And Paul says more than that, though. He says that somehow our suffering now is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. It's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. And I think that Paul means that that somehow our suffering is a consequence of our fellowship with Jesus. And, And so our fellowship of suffering now with Jesus... Because his life is the cross and then the crown, right? It's death and then resurrection. I think Paul is saying that this this participation in Christ's suffering now is preparing for us. It's guaranteeing for us this weight of glory, this resurrection, this crown that is to come. The new heavens and the new earth that we are going to experience because Christ has been raised and we will too with him. And this new heavens and new earth that we will experience is somehow more real, more substantial, more weighty. I don't know. I'm kind of scrambling for words. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's more more than what we're experiencing now. In, let, me, let me try to give you an illustration of this. In 1996, some of you were uh, here in Spokane. How many were living in Spokane in 1996? Remember the ice storm? Yeah, we were living in Seattle, but I remember coming home for Thanksgiving, and it was like a war zone, right? It was like, wow, the ice storm in 1996. Trees that were sheltered from wind and other various trials, right, were the, were the weakest. And so when the weight of the ice came on trees that were sheltered, it immediately knocked them over, broke branches. Trees that were not sheltered and experienced the, the difficulty of wind, right, and challenge, when the ice when the ice came and the weight of the ice came, they were better able to support the weight of the ice. And so somehow in this text, as we suffer with Jesus and in Jesus right now, God is preparing us to receive a weight of glory that is to come. For some of you, God is preparing you to receive great eternal glory. You've suffered greatly. And Paul says something very similar in Romans 8. He says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. There it is again, this life with Jesus. We're with him in suffering, in the fellowship of his suffering, 
and in the fellowship of his glory. And then Paul goes on to say, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's Romans 8, verses 16 through 18. So why do Christians suffer? Suffering gets Christians ready for glory. Suffering does this by purifying us, weaning us from the world, and preparing us for glory. Here's the thing, though. All these positive effects of suffering assume that the sufferer relates his suffering to his relationship with God through Christ. Unless a sufferer is clinging to Christ, he or she is not going to persevere and will not develop the character of Jesus, but will abandon hope. And so in everything that we're saying, that's really critical. We're clinging to Christ, and we've talked about what that potentially looks like. That's not always easy. Okay. Um. Oh my, sorry, we gotta go. Next week, next week, I think we're gonna make a turn. We're gonna talk, we're gonna begin talking. We've done a lot of theory, a lot of why questions, you know. Why does God allow suffering? Why do Christians suffer? Next week, we're going to make a turn and we're going to start talking about, well, how then should we respond? And we're going, to, we're going to begin that discussion next week. And then we're going to look several weeks at Psalms for sufferers. And we'll just look at some Psalms and different types of suffering that the psalmists have experienced. So we have two more Sunday school sessions for this term. And then we'll have a break from the 17th through whatever, the 31st of December. And then we'll just pick it up again in January. So if you want to come back in January, we're going to just continue talking about this topic. Okay? Let me pray for us. Father, uh, thank you. Thank you for bringing us together. Thank you that we are your beloved bride, the church. Lord, as we, as we head to worship or as we head home, Lord, we pray that your great love for us would be first in our hearts, that we love because you first loved us. Lord, I pray that would penetrate our, our fearful hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.